0: Let's get rolling. We got a lot to cover today. I'm excited to go through it. I've been spending a lot of time putting all of this together, and I think it's important, and it's funny, is that every time as I'm working through these different things and stuff, um, it's got to be the Holy Spirit's the only thing that makes sense, but I, I see a constant bombardment of similar topics and questions coming across churches around the country especially, because I'm connected to some of these pastors around the, uh, the U.S., less around the world, a little bit there, but it's the same question over and over, is what does the church look like today? What is the church? To be able to define it is kind of tough. Because you get a mixed bag of answers. And you're going to see today, you're literally going to see it, a mixed bag of answers on some of the questions we've been trying to answer. Because the thing that we have to understand is that what you think of God really doesn't matter if it's not grounded in truth. That's what it comes down to. Is it grounded in reality? I saw this meme a while back, and somebody here in town shared this. (coughs) Excuse me. And it it was talking about all these different religions. Okay, because there's a lot of them, you know. And as soon as you think you've got them all pegged, a new one will crop up somewhere. It's just, it just what happens. Because the reason that happens is people are looking for answers. I mean, even atheism today is a religion in and of itself, by the sheer definition of what a religious is. So the thing came up with all of these different religions, and the, they shared it, and they said, you know, I want my grandchildren to be able to decide for themselves which one they want to believe. And I'm sitting there reading that, and I'm like, that's interesting. Because what else in this world would we say that about outside of religion? And the answer is really not much. There's a few things, apparently gender is one of them today, but beside that, there's, there's very few things in which we just like, I want them to decide for themselves. As an example, have you ever seen apolitical parents, when I say a means no politics, in other words, they have leanings one way or the other, and they're not raising, you don't see a liberal family raising a kid, oh, you go be conservative, that's what we really want, or vice versa, right? I mean, I'm not, you know, it goes both sides out. No. Right? Where's Paul at? Paul will definitely let you know that. You just ask Paul. I bought Paul the best book, the best gift ever. I wish I had it today. I found this book. As you know, Paul is a die-hard conservative. And I saw it and I couldn't resist it. And it was a book entitled, like, All the Reasons You Should Vote Democrat. And I saw it and I bought it for Paul because when you open it up, it was a bunch of blank pages. It was the best thing ever, and so it was a Sunday morning, and I brought that thing. I said, Paul, I bought you this present. I saw it. I couldn't help my. I know it's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. I can't wait for either one. you got to have it today. I laid it there, and he just looks at me. And he looks at that, and he just didn't want to even touch it. I'm like, I had to open it for him. I had to flip. i like, you see? He's like, this is the greatest thing ever. It was funny. Anyway, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I just like that story. But my point being is that we don't let that happen in any other way. We don't allow our children to dictate how math works. Math works one way. Two plus two equals four. I don't care what answer you come up with. Because the truth is, it's four. No matter how you spin it, no matter different ways you want to look at it, it is what it is. But because today's culture has left this free love, free feeling, do what you want, feel what you want, be what you want, that is where we are today and it has crept into the church and we don't. Know why. The idea of the identity of the church is a set of characteristics by which it is definitively recognizable. And the problem we've got in the church today is there is no true definition that is recognizable and say, yep, that's the church. When you drive down the road and you see a building with a steeple, what do we say? It's church. Right? And what do we imply with that? Well, it's got to be a Christian church. But that's not necessarily true because they've now taken some old church buildings and turned them into bars because the church went out. Harvard, in their infinite wisdom, just hired their first atheist chaplain. You would think those words are oxymoron, but they're not. They're just moron. There's no oxy. Okay? But let's look at this. John chapter 13, verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one another. So, what is the recognizable characteristic of a disciple of Jesus? It is the love of that they have for one another very simple answer right even public school kids could figure that one out the problem is is we now have to define our terms because when we say love one another that does not mean what you think it means today because the word love has been thrown around so loosely it is unrecognizable from what it was because when it says that the father so loved the world That he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. When that love comes down, that's not the same love that we talk about, even to the point that we love our spouse or we love our family. It's a different kind of love. It's a love that is unknown on this planet because we can't do it. No matter how much you love a person, there is a condition attached to it. There could be a point in time where that love could vanish away. And love today is more predicated on feelings than it is anything else. But if love was just a feeling, the Israelites would cease to exist when it came to God. The smiter would come out, he'd blow them up. And when he got done with them, he'd turn to us. Because we all deserve it. But the characteristic of love is what sets a disciple apart from a non-disciple. But we have to know what that means. Now, we're not going to dig into that today. We'll come at that later. So it comes down to this. When we talk about a disciple, we're talking about a Christian. Well, what does a Christian look like? And how do they talk? And what, how does that affect every phase of their life? Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we are new according to what Christ has said and what Christ has done. We are no longer the same. We're no longer dictated by this world, dictated by our past. We are dictated by what God has said. That's it. Once we accept that, the rest of it gets really easy, so to speak. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I've read some of these. I'm going to go through these quickly. Verse 1 I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince rebuke exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will keep up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables but you be watchful in all things endure affliction do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry so what is Paul warning Timothy about the days coming Where they won't listen to truth, but they'll take a non-truth that they want to be true and find people who will agree with them and they'll lift those people up and say, listen to this guy. I know that's what God said, but that's your opinion. And so therefore, that's not true. This guy says it this way and this guy agrees with me, that means this guy is right. Right? Right? I mean, that's basically where we are. That's where we want to be as a society. We don't want correction. We don't want to be wrong. We want what we want, and that's what we want, and that's all that we want. We don't care what you want. It's all about me. You see, what's happened in the church today is we've ignored the Old Testament in favor of the new. We're attempting to deal with this judgmental, misogynistic, homophobic God in the Old Testament just looking for an opportunity to drop the hammer. He's hiding behind every corner. You get something wrong, he's going to blow you up. And then you get to the New Testament where everything is about love and mercy and compassion. And as we saw, as we looked at this very briefly, that that is just not true. That's not the case. We have a very circumspective understanding of the old. Because most of us who grew up in the church, it was all about the new covenant. Which it is. It's all about what Jesus did. But what Jesus did is one thing. Why he did it's another. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know why he did it. You have to have both, and that's the problem we have in the church today. We've been taught the what's, we've never been taught the why's. We know what to do and what not to do. We know what to say and what not to say. We know what to believe and what not to believe, but we don't know why any of it is true. We just do it because we were told. So the church today is, may believe in the big truths about God, but we've accepted the small lives because today the church is more worldly than it is holy. We are no longer set apart, unique, distinctive. We are more like the world than we should be. Romans chapter 8 verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Carnal mind, spiritual mind. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You realize if we just did this part and nothing else, we only just said, okay, well, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means we're alive and not dead, but our sacrifice has to meet certain characteristics. That holy, meaning that we are set apart and acceptable to God, which means there are standards that have to be met. If we just did that, we deal with a lot of the nonsense that goes on in the world today. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do you do that? Transform your mind. Who does that? You do that. God makes you new, your mind, you renew. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but everything in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What will? God will. The peace of God. The knowing the truth. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So what are we doing? We're... Thinking about things that God has said is true and honorable and just, not what the world has said. You realize they use those same words? They use the same word, words, but we have different definitions. They use the same word for love, but we have a different definition. We're sticking to the godly definition. I mean, look what they've done with all sorts of words, right? Remember, some of you guys are old enough. Do you remember what gay used to mean? At one point, we were all gay. Woohoo! Doesn't mean we got to put on sequin shirts or anything like that. We were just happy. That's what it meant. I mean, kids today going back and listening to the Flintstone theme song will be very confused. Because gay old time means something completely different today. But look what happens. We change the meanings of words all the time. It happens all the time. Love today is unrecognizable. Disciple today is unrecognizable. Truth today is unrecognizable. Because it is not grounded in anything. It is only grounded in our thoughts and our feelings. And guess what? Your thought life matters because inherently what you believe to be true will impact the way you behave every single time. Your beliefs about God will impact the way you expect God to respond. If you treat God as nothing more than your fairy godmother... And that when something is bad, you just make a wish, and he'll wave his wand, and all of it will go away, and your problems will be solved, you will be sorely disappointed. Sorely disappointed, because that's not how God works. How do we know how God works? It comes back to truth. Now, let's look at this. I showed you this last week. This is a tweet that went out recently from an atheist page. I can give it to you. I just don't remember what it is. I think it's called The Thinking Atheist, which is ironic, but whatever. But this is a fair question that we have to be able to deal with. Now, I'm going to spend a ton of time on this, but it says if God is supremely good, then he has the desire to eliminate evil. True? True. If God is omnipotent, then he, has the, he is able to eliminate evil. Omnipotent meaning all-powerful. That's also true. If God is omniscient, then he knows that evil exists, and he knows how to eliminate. Also true. Therefore, if God exists as supremely good, omnipotent, and omniscient, then evil does not exist. Is that True false we'll get back to that we see that evil exists therefore supremely good omnipotent and omniscient God does not exist one does not make the other true here's the problem they are stealing from the biblical worldview about what good is right because good is not what you want it to be good is based off the standard that is God I've shown some of you this you guys look over here I didn't plan on bringing this out but I was talking to somebody maybe you can see this this was by C.S. Lewis. This is not by Chris. I'm not that smart, all right? But C.S. Lewis, who was a one-time atheist, converted to Christianity. He was a philosopher. Philosophy's good. We often think of philosophy as bad because you maybe had to take it in college, and you're like, this is awful. But don't blame God for that, okay? But this here is my rendition of a crooked line. We see crooked lines all over the place, right? We see them all the time. And how do we know that that line is crooked? There's only one way that we know that line is crooked. It's because the standard is a straight line, and we've seen it. So to say that something is good means that you know what the standard of good is. And if there is no God, there is no standard. It is simply your opinion, one man's opinion over another. They're stealing from God in order to make their case, and they don't even realize that it's happening. That's what's amazing When you confront them with this fact, there's a bunch of hoops that they jump through, but the bottom line is the fact that you cannot have good without God, and you cannot have love without God. Who determines what is good? God does. If God is the standard of good, therefore everything that doesn't meet up to that is what we call bad. That's why he says your works are nothing but filthy rags, because there's nothing you can do that matches that, but he did it for you. You see how that works? I know, intellectual constipation, philosophy, it's tough, okay? Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un- all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, I read this last week. What this passage, and you should read all of Romans 1 to get a clear understanding of what's happening and God's judgment on mankind when they've done this thing, how he turns them over to their debased mind to do what they ought not do. But the bottom line is that this is telling us that the idea of somebody who can't know that God exists or refuses to acknowledge the existence of God is doing so willfully. Because what may be known about God has been revealed to them. You see, an atheistic worldview is only in naturalism. It has to be natural. If it's not nature, it doesn't exist. So you've eliminated something immediately. Therefore, anything that doesn't line up with your results, you have to throw out and do it over again because you obviously did it wrong. And so if it's not natural, it doesn't exist. And so they can't deal with the fact of where did life come from? They can see and we can observe transitions from one thing to another not a one kind to a different kind but a cat will be bigger smaller different colors whatever but at the end of the day it's still a cat it's still worthless they shouldn't exist but there's still a cat we've done all sorts of weird stuff with corn but it's still corn do you know there's purple potatoes now do you know why there's purple potatoes because either somebody got a grant they didn't need or got way too much time on their hands I mean, a chihuahua. What a useless animal. But it's still a dog. It's still a potato. It's still corn. It's still a cat, no matter how you swing it. They'll show you examples of flies and how they've genetically modified them. And some has more legs and less legs and less wings. And you know what happens? It doesn't fly. It doesn't work. Because they can't add new information. They're actually making the thing more useless. Could you imagine if they got their hands on the chihuahua? But here we are. They can't deal with where life came from. Once life is here, they think they've got it figured out. But where it came from, they've got all sorts of theories. The the big one right now is what they call panspermia, that aliens came down and seeded life. I love that. God couldn't have done it, but these aliens, that, that makes sense to me. Where'd the aliens come from? That's what they always say about God, but whatever. Oh, well, they evolved too. They're just more evolved than... I don't want to go there, guys. Listen. It's stupid. And 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that it's stupid. Read this and watch it very carefully. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both which I I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. How does a mind get pure? focuses on the things that we're told to. That you may be mindful of the words which are spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord, Savior. Now, what did he say? The holy prophets were who? Those who came in the Old Testament. Be mindful of those things. That means we should know them. And the words of the apostles, right? (coughs) Excuse me, verse 3. Knowing this, scoffers will come in the last days. Are we in the last days? Yes. Are the scoffers here? You betcha. They're walking according to their own lust. Is that true? Absolutely. Saying this, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Is that not what you hear? If God's coming back, where is he? When's he going to get here? We hear it all the time. Verse 5, this is the part. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that had then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, and are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, the key here in understanding... Is that they willfully forget. That God created everything and now it's being held up until the day of judgment comes. They willfully forget. You know what that means in the Greek? If you break this down hermeneutically, in the Greek language, it means that they are dumb on purpose. That's kind of a joke. You can laugh at that. It's okay. Willfully forget. I choose not to acknowledge. Does that sound like anything we've seen scripturally before? Absolutely. Because the Pharisees saw the signs, they saw the dead raised, they saw Jesus out of the tomb, and what do they do? Bribe the guards. The only explanation. Because we can't allow this to be true. Because if it's true, then there are strings attached. This is the world we live in. And this is what we are up against. And this is why the church cannot be afraid of truth and knowledge. We have to stand on that platform. We have nothing else. The beautiful thing is, is we don't have to defend truth. That's up to God. We have to stand for it, no matter how ugly it gets out there. So we read this, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Your weapons are used for one thing. All of those things come against the knowledge of God. When your mind is renewed and brought into obedience to Christ, these thoughts cannot enter in because they'll have no grounding on which they can last. There's nothing for them to grab hold of, there's nothing that they can do to get you off kilter. When the enemy comes in and uses scripture against you or uses worldly things against you, if you respond carnally, you've already lost. But if you respond biblically, you cannot lose. Because the truth is on your side. It's no different than we see things that people have stood on certain platforms saying, no, this is right. I don't care what happens. I cannot let this go. I just heard about this story. It's in the book of the martyrs. Um, I heard about it yesterday, the day before. I don't even know. I don't even know when this happened. So I'm going to give you the basic details of this. But somewhere a man was being tortured. And they were trying to get him to renounce Christ. And he absolutely refused. They were hot pokers and beating him and everything. And he would not do it. He, had, he knew the truth. He was not going to allow outside pressure. And that's pretty good pressure, y'all. He wasn't just unfriended on Facebook. I mean, it's pretty good pressure. And he refused to do it. So they upped the ante a little bit. And they brought in his 14-year-old son. And said, we are going to torture him, beat him, and kill him if you don't reject Christ. And at first the man refused. And he began to beat his son. And... The man finally could not take it anymore. He says, okay, if you will stop, I will do it. And the 14-year-old boy piped up and says, no, you won't. I would rather die with my father standing on truth and to see the Lord today than to let them make you back down. That's powerful. 14 years old. You ever had a 14-year-old? You are, aren't you? How do you get yourself dressed in the morning? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, but that's the world we live in. But think about that. The 14-year-old's conviction was so strong that he would rather die than see his father renounce his faith. That's powerful. And what makes you do that is what you know to be true. So as we've got into this, we begin to understand we've got to know something. There are four questions. They're fundamental that every believer must be able to answer and understand. The first one, who is God? The second one, who am I in relationship to him? The third one is how do we worship God? Because he has a certain way that he wants that done. And the fourth is who is my enemy? And the people you argue with on social media is not those. So when it comes down to this, who is God? We began to define this last week. But I like to let you see some of the things that I have experienced in the streets before. As you guys know, I've done ministry on college campuses and things like that. And let me tell you something. You get all sorts of interesting answers when you go out there. So I've got a couple of quick videos that I want to show you. The first one, and this is from the National Geographic channel, okay? The thing is, you can get really good theology from the National Geographic channel. And that's sarcasm for those of you that's maybe not picking it up, okay? I'm trying to help. But they interview a Jewish... Rabbi, couldn't think of the word, Christian pastor, and a Muslim imam, which remember last week I was trying to say, I don't know what a Muslim pastor is, but this is what it was. It's called an imam. Who knew? Huh? Security. (laughs) I work alone. So, take a look at this. They're answering the question, who is God? So, who's smarter now? All right. I like it. You know, what's interesting about that is if you begin to drill down on it, what did we learn? Nothing. Because what were they giving? Opinions. God is in me, God is in you, God is love, God is light. Here's my question. How did they come to that conclusion? What are they basing that off of? Right? I mean, we're dealing with what should be, forgive the analogy, the best of the best. You've got a Christian pastor who should be educated and trained. You've got a Jewish rabbi who she should, which I didn't even know a woman could be a rabbi. That was new to me, but, but whatever, you know, maybe. I have no idea. And uh, she should be educated and trained. When you take on that term rabbi, there's usually a lot of hoops you jump through. And then you've got a Muslim imam who, I assume, is going to be fairly educated in the ways of Allah. And what did they do? They sat them together and they said, who is God? And they all began to define it. But did you notice how the characteristics were all pretty much the same? What is the implication of that? Same God. We just call him something different. The characteristics are all the same. Is that true? Is that not true? Now, that is by what should be the educated one. But let's go and ask the same question to people on the streets. Okay? See what kind of answers you get there. If you'll go ahead and play the next one. got better, didn't it? So what do we see here? We see that just like the word love is unrecognizable today, so is the word God. Because it can be anything you want. When they say God is nature, and it's around us, what is that? It's what we call pantheism. He's in the flowers, he's in the trees, the birds and the bees. I feel like a song coming on. You know, I mean, if God is in you and God is in me, and it all comes back to this. Can they all be true? Because it does not matter what you think, it only matters that which is true. Your belief system is predicated upon a belief in objective reality. And so when you ask people, who is God, that's a loaded question. Because it's like, what do you mean? A lot of times, what do you mean the God of the Bible? The God of, of, of the uh, Allah? The Quran, that's what i try to think of. You know, Krishna, you hear all these different terms. Is that the God? It depends on the God you're talking about. I like, no. I'm asking, who is God? And you know, many Christians today cannot answer this question. Because our belief in something is dictated upon experience. And experience is critical, but it can't be the final arbiter in our belief system about God. Because your experience and my experience may not be the same. I grew up, for the most part, going to church and hearing about God. I did not have that rough of a life. It was pretty low-key. No great tragedies took place in my world. Some bad things happened, but that's kind of relative. But some people were brought out of some amazing lifestyle or something happened where supernaturally God has intervened and their experience is vastly different than mine. And are we talking about the same thing? Because you have to go beyond the experience to something that can be objectively verified. You see, we serve a holy, sovereign, omniscient, immutable God, meaning He's unchanging in every way. When we say God, we mean something specific. If you were to begin to describe someone you're close to, you would begin to describe very specific characteristics. Adam, would you stand up? Do me a favor. I'm going to put him on spots because he doesn't like to be the center of attention. So I want to make it awkward for you, as I can. If we were to describe Adam, and we were looking, and for those of you that either related or know him well, some of the things that we would describe as what? What's the first thing you would come to mind? You think of Adam. Anybody. This is the interactive part of the program, folks. Go ahead. Hilarious. Sarcastic. Thoughtful. Finally, someone's being nice. That's the mother-in-law right there. What else? What? Strong. He looks strong, doesn't he? What else? How come normally sing bald? <laughs> right I mean it is obvious smart yeah he's very smart it doesn't take you very long to figure that out what else quiet he is quiet I... <laughs> you know Christmas is right around the corner or at least it was I mean, you go through all of these characteristics and you would begin to describe because he's right there in front of you and you know him and you can see him. Now, Adam, sit down. You're done. Thank you, Adam. Very, very much appreciate your help. Now, here's the thing. Imagine, if you will, that none of you have met Adam and we're dependent upon all the descriptions that these people had written down about Adam that they knew. And we're 100 years into the future. And we're like, there was this Adam guy. He was from Nebraska City and I've read about him and if I began to describe him I would begin to start with sarcasm and I heard annoying and smart and strong and then we would eventually get to his look you guys were overthinking this but that's not uncommon everybody's like oh he's so nice and oh, you know oh, he's wearing shorts I mean whatever you know I mean, do you tell me about what he did and how he responded, and you would write stories about that. And that would be the only knowledge of him that I had was those who experienced him firsthand. You guys get that? Because that would be grounded in facts. But what would happen if we had all of these things that has characters, and they all happen to line up. And then we had this one that talked about this man who was a secret axe murderer. And he wasn't, wasn't nice, he just portrayed himself. We would look at that and be like, that doesn't line up with anything that I've read before. Nothing. So odds are we would toss that out. You see, what we're doing is we're going back to the stories in the Old Testament about these first-hand experiences with God. The God of the Bible. There are lots of gods. But there is one, Yahweh, the Creator God. Many have tried to discount him and and throw him out and forget about him, but there is truly only one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're going back to those writings. And on top of that, His Son Jesus is found in one place that we know—it's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles who captured His essence inside of their gospels. What do we know about Jesus? How do you know God is love? What if God is vengeance? You don't know that outside of Scripture. Do you realize now that not anybody in this room would know anything about George Washington if it wasn't captured by people who knew George Washington? What if they never wrote anything about him? We wouldn't know anything about him. Do you realize that there are millions of people throughout time that we don't know anything about? Because nobody thought to write about them. All of us are likely going to be one of them where well, there isn't going to be much written about us, and they'll be able to go back in history and be like, "Man, can you believe that guy?" That's crazy. You see, it has to go back and be grounded in something. You don't know that God is love outside of Scripture says so. You don't know that God is vengeful outside of Scripture says so. We have to be grounded in something bigger than our experience and our opinion. We see the greatest personification of God found in the life of Jesus. Because here, we have the creator of everything. And what does he do? He steps into his creation and did critical things all with a purpose we saw him teach we saw him preach we saw him heal we saw him die we saw him buried we saw him resurrected we saw his followers carry on his torch there's a reason for all of that it was all grounded in what the purpose of jesus life was in john chapter 12 verse 23 it says but jesus answered them saying the hour has come that the son of man Should be glorified. And most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Why did Jesus come? that purpose you see he was an example to all of us he came for a purpose that purpose is found inside of the Old Testament you can't have one without the other the foundation of the new is found in the old it will give you the understanding of the why Jesus tells us as if we have seen him we have seen who the father John 14 verse 7 if you know me You would have known my father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long yet you have not known me? Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What he is saying is that when you see him, you are seeing the essence of God himself. The reason that he is there, he was the creator. We know in Luke, based on the genealogy, that he goes backwards, he gets to Adam, and before Adam was what? The son of God. He was the creator, the uncaused first cause. He was there from the beginning. It wasn't God the Father, vengeful God, Jesus, merciful. They are the same God. And we know nothing about this God outside of Scripture. Yes, inside of us, it draws us near to us, but the details are found there. We see so much about who God is found simply in the names of God himself. Because today, the names don't carry as much weight. Names today are basically things that we like. It might be a family name. I mean, depending on where you are, it might be just a sound you like. I don't know. There's some weird names that are going on out there. But the names then meant something. They were based on on what they were, their characteristics and whatnot. In Genesis chapter 25, you see this. Verse 25, and the first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over so they called his name Esau and afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel so his name was called Jacob well what do these names mean well if you look it up Esau means Harry and Jacob means heel grabber not real complicated I mean imagine like you're born and you're like oh Harry you know I mean you know not real inventive but they were descriptions of characteristics of them right you see that today you might be born with one name but you you pick up a nickname a lot of times. And it's usually based off something that you've done. For example, how many large men have you ever met that were named slim or tiny? Right? It's it's not true, but it's a characteristic, right? I'll tell you a story about one of this girl, she hates this nickname. But it was he was a youth pastor and they, they nicknamed their daughter, her name is Tristan, but they called her Tiki. And I couldn't figure out why, and it always bothered me. Because it's like, you always think, you know, like, like Jonathan, they called John or, or something along, James sometimes is Jim or something like that. But Tristan to Tiki didn't make any sense to me. And so finally one day I said, why do you call her that? Like, what is that? They said, well, here's the thing. When she was a baby, she had the worst smelling diapers you ever smelled in your life and they would always be like oh you're so tiki and the name stuck lucky her right because who doesn't want to be known for the rest of their life by that description you see the names matter the names have meanings and they are there for a purpose and so when we begin to break this down we can see this in other parts of scripture I've showed you this if you sat through the teaching in Genesis I've showed you this on Wednesday night but let's look at Genesis chapter 5 I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here but I want to show you this once again The book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in his likeness of God. He created them male and female, blessed them and called them mankind. And the day was created, and Adam lived 130 years, and he begot a son in his own likeness after his image named Seth. And after he begot Seth, Adam was 800 years. And we're going to go through this. you got Seth and Enosh and, and Canaan, Mahalel, Jared. I mean, you got all of these. Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech. No, you got all these names. Again, I don't want to go through all of this just for time's sake. We've read it. If you really want to go back and read the genealogy, I would encourage you to do it because it's exciting stuff. But when you put these names together, if you put them in order, this is what it looks like. And as I've told you guys, as soon as we get here, boom, right there. Okay? That is the name in Hebrew. These are not translated. They're called what's transliterated, which means they are spelled in English like they sound in Hebrew. Adam is a dom. I don't know how you pronounce the rest of those. But you put it in English. This is what it says. Man appointed, mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Those are the meanings of the name. Adam means man, Seth appointed, Enoch mortal, and so on. If you put this in a sentence, this is what it sounds like. (coughs) Excuse me. The man was appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Now what does that sound like? That sounds like the gospel. Right? in the names. Were there other children that were born? Very likely. If they were in any other order, do they work? No. This is something that is inside the text. It is there. It is deliberate by the Holy Spirit. There's no question about it. There's no way a bunch of Jewish rabbis got together and said, oh, let's just hide this in there. That'll make sense. That's not going to happen. But again, we're looking at these names have meanings. And so let's look at this. Let's look at the names of God. You see, he said something in in the Ten Commandments. He said, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which means do not take on my name and not represent it to its fullest. But you began to understand who God is found in his names. Let's go through a few of these, and this is not exhaustive. El Eloah, which means mighty, strong, uh, prominent. The L portion means power and might. It's associated with qualities of integrity. But he's also jealous and compassionate. It, his might remains. And then you have El Shaddai. Some of these you guys will recognize. He's God Almighty, the mighty one of G- Jacob. It's God's ultimate power over all things. The name Adonai, which we've seen before, and some of us know what that means. It just means Lord. But because they would write, they didn't feel right writing the name Yahweh, Yadhe Devadhe. Y H W H. There were no uh, vowels in the Jewish language. Because it was so sacred for sinful men to be able to write, they would oftentimes write Adonai. And it was used more when he was dealing with Gentiles because them Gentiles, they didn't measure up. And then you get to Yahweh or Jehovah, which is another one, which means Lord. It's the proper name of God. It's distinguishing it from Adonai. When he gave the name to Moses, I am who I am. It is Yahweh that is there, it's immediacy. It's presence. He's accessible. They call on Him for deliverance. They call on Him for forgiveness. They call on Him for guidance. That is Yahweh. And then you get into some of these other names. Where it'll say Yahweh Jirah or Jehovah Jirah. It's the same thing. It means that the Lord will provide. It will memorialize Abraham when God provided the ram for the sacrifice in place of Isaac. Yahweh Rapha, Jehovah Rapha, is the Lord who heals. He says, I am Jehovah who heals you. Exodus 15 It's body and soul preserving and curing diseases and by pardoning iniquities. It's Jehovah Nisi or Yahweh Nisi is the Lord our banner. Banner is always understood as a rallying place it's where they come together and it commemorated a desert victory over the Malachites in Exodus chapter 17. Yahweh Im Kadesh, the Lord who sanctifies and makes holy. It is him and him alone, not the law, who cleansed the people and made them holy, which means they were set apart. And Yahweh Shalom is the Lord our peace. It was given by Gideon at the altar. It was built after the angel of God assured him that he would not die and that he would after seeing him. He builds this and he says, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord of Peace. Yahweh Elohim is the Lord our God, combination of God's name Yahweh and the generic name for Lord and that he is the Lord of Lords. Yahweh Zedkindu, I can't even say this, the Lord our Righteousness. It is God who provides righteousness, is from the word Hebrew to man, ultimately in the person of his son Jesus who came and set apart and that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Yahweh rohi is the Lord our shepherd. After David realized his relationship as a shepherd to his sheep, he realized exactly the relationship God that had with him and he declares him to be Yahweh rohi, he is the shepherd and I shall not want. Yahweh Shema is the Lord is there. His name is descri- ascribed to Jerusalem and the temple. It's indicating that God was there. He was His presence was there. Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts, the host means hordes or both angels of men. The Lord is the host of heaven and in the inhabitants of the earth are both Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, master, slave, it didn't matter. It's expressive of the majesty and power and authority of God. It shows that he is able to accomplish whatever he determines and sets out to do. Then you have El Elion, who is the most high. It's derived from the Hebrew root to go up or to ascend. It's the implication that he is the highest, the very highest. It denotes exaltation, it speaks of the absolute right to lordship and El Roi which is God of seeing the name is described by Hagar alone as desperate in the wilderness and being driven out by Sarah and when Hagar met the angel of the Lord she realized that she had seen God himself it was a theophany and she realized that El Roi saw her in her distress and fe- testified that he is the God who lives and sees all El Olam Everlasting God is God's nature without beginning or end, free from all constraints of time. He contains within himself the very cause of time itself. He is from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. That's Psalm 90. El Gibor, he's the mighty God. It's the name describing Messiah, Christ Jesus, prophetic, in Isaiah. It's a powerful and mighty war. and The Messiah and the mighty God will accomplish the destruction of God's enemy and rule with a rod of iron. And we could go on and on and on. Who is God? is found in one place. That is Scripture. It is our duty and privilege to mine that out. We cannot be circumsvent and just say, well, God is love and God is passion and God is merciful. Those are descriptives of Him. But it comes down to who is God is found in Scripture. Our discovery of Him is found in Scripture. You may experience His presence. And you may experience that compassion and that mercy and that love. You may experience His supernatural endeavors and healing. He may touch you and you may fall on the ground. Or you may speak in tongues or you may laugh. Or you may do any of the other things that are at least possible from the presence of God. And those are wonderful. But our knowledge of Him is grounded in the truth of the Scriptures. It always comes back to that. That is why from the very beginning the Scriptures have been on attack. And the church has done a very poor job of telling us why we know that this is true. We've stated time and time again for millennia that this is true. But the why is true. Let me give you one more example. I had this person come to me years ago. And they were kind of frustrated with Scripture. And it's understandable because sometimes there are things that are hard to understand. If you put in the time... And you begin to study and you begin to research. You begin to understand some of this stuff. And the Holy Spirit will certainly guide you in all of that. But there is some work on our end. But he says, I don't want a relationship with a book. I want a relationship like Abraham had, where he had just a relationship with God. He had a relationship with a book. He had a relationship with God. And I said, well, how do you even know that's possible? He said, because Jesus said that I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to send another helper. And he will guide you into all truth. And I just looked at him and I said, how do you know that? He said, because I read it in the... And he stopped. I said, exactly. You would not know that to be possible if it was not found in the words of Scripture. You would not know the relationship that Abraham had with God if it were not grounded in Scripture. Everything comes back to this. This is why this is so crucial. This is why we have to raise our children with an understanding of what this is and what it says. And most importantly, what it is not. It's foundational. We teach this as apologetics today, but it just used to be called discipleship. We are far too emotional, far too caught up in our feelings, and far too carnal. We're not spiritually minded. We're earthly minded. And we need to get past that. We need to respond to every situation from a biblical standpoint. And that biblical standpoint is found in one place, and it's not your opinion. It's in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. And we thank you, Lord, that in all things that we can find the answers at which we look for. Lord, we just thank you that each and every day that we are growing closer to you, that we will put in the effort, that we will spend time in prayer and we'll spend time fasting and we will look for our lives to be glorifying you, Lord, that in everything that we say and do is to bring glory to your name and we know who you are because you have revealed it to us in Scripture. So, Lord, I thank you that as we get bold to continue to do the work of the ministry, that you fulfill and confirm everything that we say with signs following. I thank you that your spirit is moving in our lives and our hearts right now, that we are leaving different than what we came, Lord, that our lives are changed forever. Into the image of you is what we thrive to be like. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we have. May we never take them for granted, and may we continue to grow in who you are and what you've called us to be. We thank you for all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. Talk to you soon.